Hey y'all, welcome, welcome to REF. My name is Simon Stokes. If you haven't met me, I'm the REF campus minister uh, here. And I want to start off by saying thank you so much for doing that sneak attack with the stroller. That was <laughs> that was one of the sweetest things ever. When uh, I feel like I need to tell this story. When Katie and I were trying to figure out stuff post-grad school, um, we had an opportunity to go to possibly interview for a church in Los Angeles or come to this job and interview for this. And we chose this job because we thought that our kids would be loved by college students better than people in L.A. And <laughs> I think that's pretty true. <laughs> um, so a lot of people have asked me, uh, Simon, what are you doing this summer? Aren't you a grown man? And you have a summer break. <laughs> Sorry. I know, right? And then I'd say, shh, be cool, man. <laughs> Who wants to know this? <laughs> uh, I'm going to be doing things like summer RUF. I'm going to be doing things like writing sermons for the fall. Uh, find out my bench, Max. I'm going to find that. <laughs> I don't know the place. <laughs> I didn't need to tell you that, though. Uh, <laughs> but summer really, for me, is a big game changer. Uh, because not only will I be doing things I really need to do for the fall and for the things that are here in the summer, but, I mean, I really am going to get to rest, and it is a true game changer. Like, Netflix, the fact that I can sit and just rot into the couch cushions and, and catch up on Arrested Development or Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Uh, <laughs> Katie got really into that for a while. It hurt my head to listen to it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The fact that I can walk around this awesome campus uh, where Michael Jordan, like, at one time, uh, yeah, played. He changed the game. That was awesome. Uh, the fact that I can sit on my couch and I can play with an iPhone. Uh, I don't know, like, when I was a freshman in college, like, we, like, iPhones didn't exist. The fact that you can check your email or, like, surf the web from, like, the comfort of your phone is a game changer. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And these are all things I'm looking forward to this summer, just hanging out. Um, all those things have been game changers for me. All of them will be game changers this summer. Um, this past semester, though, we've been talking a lot about Christian mission and what it means uh, to follow Jesus' life, the kind of the change that he brings about, that he transforms. Like, if the Bible is true, if the Gospels are true, if the things that we read about are true, that's a game changer for us. That's a game changer for our lives. We've been going through the book of Acts We've been seeing kind of the trials and the tribulations of the early church and the confrontation, the persecution that comes to the fact that, you know, Jesus' mission is to transform the world. And in many ways, the hope of the world, the mission of the world is that they will not be, it will not be transformed. Like, no, we're fine. And you see that in the book of Acts. There's intense persecution that the church undertakes. And even today, um, in part, other parts of the world, the church is intensely persecuted. And one of the first people to really feel that right on the chin was the Apostle Paul. Uh, and from really a worldly perspective, he was at the like, meteoric career on his way to the top, one of the brightest, one of the best, one of the most hardworking, most zealous. He became a Christian. He loses all of that in the book of Acts. You just see him just giving up all these things to tell people about Jesus and mission. But one of the crazy things is that Paul, who's maybe one of the best missionaries ever, in his letters he never uses the word mission. Like his whole life is about mission, he never uses the word mission. 
When he tells people to live the Christian life, he just says, be faithful. Love people. Be patient. Suffer for the sake of the gospel. It is as if Paul, for him, just mission is being faithful in the world. And one of the great barriers to that is what Paul calls worldliness. Um, and when he says that, he doesn't mean that the world is like this chunk of rock that's hurtling through space. What Paul means is he means the system of kind of human interactions that creates injustice and impression, like human trafficking, overconsumption of natural resources, racism, broken work ethics, broken sexuality. Worldliness is anti-God. And it says, I will have my money, my time, my energy on my terms. It's not this thing out there. It's a thing in here, inside of all of us. Inside of Christians, inside of non-Christians. It's inside of all of us. And biblically, being a worldly person means giving yourself over to the idea that I will have my life on my terms. And the thing that all of us feel is this incredible pressure to be conformed to the world. Conformed to that kind of system whether in your time or your money or your place of business, your work where you work now, your studies, dating, all of that. But Paul's point in what we're about to read tonight is that we must be transformed, not by the world, but by the mercy of God, because that's the real game changer. So we're not, we're not going to read here from the book of Acts um, to close it out. The book of Acts ends with Paul in his house and the word of God going out by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we're going to read from the book of Romans because we want to look at what is it that Paul's, really, the mission of Paul is when he expresses it in his own terms. What is he telling us? So we're about to read here from uh, Romans chapter 12. And this is really the hinge towards the end of the book where Paul has been laying out all these big doctrines, all these big things that are going on. Sin, the fall, God's mercy, and Paul looks at all those things and he says, and I want you to pay attention to this as we read it, therefore. That because of all these things that God has done, therefore, our life changes. Therefore. So let's read Romans 12, 1 through 2. As we do that, we're going to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be conformed to the world? And what does it mean to be transformed by the mercy of God? What does it mean to be conformed to the world? And what does it mean to be transformed by God's mercy. Let's read Romans 12, 1 through 2, and we'll get started. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray and ask for God to help us understand this. Father, you, um, you promised that the grass will wither and the flowers will fade, Lord, that all flesh will die, but that your word will stand forever. And Lord, we pray that we would be transformed by that word tonight and transformed by the story of Christianity that we learn from it, that you have looked on our brokenness, that you've looked on our sin, God, that you sent your son to die in our place so that we would be made um, acceptable to you, so you delight in us, you welcome us into your kingdom, so we would serve you and be transformed by your mercy. And Lord, I pray that you would work tonight in all of our hearts. You know that apart from your work, that uh, we are blind and deaf to 
to who you are and what you say and what you do. But through your work, we see you and we know you. You live and move through your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's start off. What does worldliness look like? What does worldliness look like? I would say this. You can focus on uh, kind of the actions of worldliness, the thoughts of worldliness, but let's focus really on the mind set behind worldliness, the, kind of the, the crumb that's there in the start, especially for us here in the West. I say this about worldliness, that worldliness is when someone who is finite starts to act as though they were infinite. As though someone who is finite starts to act as though they were infinite. Like, God, I don't need you. I don't want you in my life. I can do things on my own. What would that look like for us? I think it would look like cynicism. So a cynic assumes that they really are in the know. They don't need anything or anyone to kind of tell them what's going on. They see through everything. They kind of sit on the mountain and survey everything from up above. They can see through all these objections, all these people, all these motivations through their neighbor. The cynic is always observing, critiquing, but they're never engaging with other people, loving, hoping, because why would they? They can really see the way the world works. And what's the point? Because for the cynic, the leading tone of the world is despair, but it's not hope. The cynic is always that kind of cool person who hovers at the edge, always over the fray, might throw in a dart every now and again of just their opinion or this thing they read from some guy. But they're never actually in the fray or in the mix, distant but never engaged. Cynicism destroys intimacy and trust because what's the point? People are just going to disappoint anyway. I'm just going to disappoint anyway. Cynics believe that they're disinterested observers on this kind of quest for authenticity. They can assume that they're humble because they offer nothing. And let me just say, like, by nature, this can be any of us. And I myself cycle through periods of cynicism. This is all of our hearts. We all struggle with this kind of worldliness. We can all feel that we're deeply superior because we think that we can see through everything. C.S. Lewis wrote this about the cynic. He said, you know, you cannot go on explaining away forever. You'll find that you've explained explanation itself away. You can't go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it on the other side. <coughs> if you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. But we can be tempted to look at everything and say, I see through it all. I see your motivations. I see what you really want to get out of this. I can't trust you. I don't trust you. I don't trust you, God. I don't trust your people. I don't trust your word. And really what's sad about this, and I think what can be sad about our hearts, is that a cynic is a defeated optimist. This, a cynic is a defeated optimist. But they were optimistic about the wrong things. They were never optimistic about God working in history. That we were optimistic that if people tried hard enough, that if we tried hard enough, that we could make it, we could do it on our own. But it's impossible to read history, or to read news, or to really look at yourself and see people as being fundamentally good, or people as though they can kind of make themselves, or pull themselves up by the bootstraps. And so we become cynical and distant from one another. Because what's the point? People will just disappoint you. The cynic is afraid that they will just disappoint you. 
it's easier just to avoid that kind of heartache. And that disappointment is at the heart of worldliness. Because to have life on your terms is to be disappointed. It's cynicism. So if that's worldliness, what does it mean to be transformed by God's mercy? Look what Paul says here in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The start of transformation for Paul, the start of transformation for ourselves, the start of transformation at UNC, is the mercies of God. That if trying harder was the only way to get better, then I think people would have figured it out by now, right? Like, we've got better technology, we've got better stuff, cooler clothes, we have Netflix and iPod, uh, iPads. But at heart, we're still fundamentally the same people we always have been. We just have more stuff. But Christianity begins with this really frank admission that people are corrupted all the way down and all the way in. And a mature understanding of people recognizes that our fallenness affects everything about us. Our minds, our hearts, our souls, our bodies, everything. Christianity doesn't say that the problem is out there in like culture or people's circumstances or their education. But we say that it starts here in our hearts. And if you want to transform the world, you want to be transformed, then start with your hearts. Start with your minds. But here's the thing. Christians aren't kind of Debbie Downers either. Uh, author Paul Miller says that the feel of the Christian life, the way that the Christian life feels, is cautious optimism. Cautious optimism. Christians are cautious because we know that people are broken. And we know that people are sinful. And we include ourselves in that. We don't trust our own motivations. We know we're a mixed bag. But we're also optimistic because we believe that God has really worked in history. And he has really, really been merciful to us. And really been merciful to, to people. Like the Senate, Christianity looks through people and says, this is not going to work. This is not going to save me. But unlike the Senate, Christianity looks through people and sees God and his mercies on the other side. You see, God, the ultimate realist, looked at the fact that people were never going to change on their own. Like, we could get all the technology we wanted, we could write all the books we wanted to write, but we, in our hearts, were never going to change on our own. We were never going to stop being racist, or sexist, or greedy, or petty, or stop worshipping things that really not, were not going to give us life. And so God changed the game. And He came to people instead of making people come to Him. And our optimism is rooted in the fact that God has mercy on sinners. And the only way to look at things like addiction or depression or war, honestly, is with, the, is with optimism instead of cynicism, is with the view that God has mercy. He's really worked in history. And God's mercy is not just the doorway into Christianity. It's kind of the whole shebang. To be a Christian is to be daily transformed by God's mercy. To say, God, I need you all the time. I need you when I feel like it's a great day. I need you when I feel like I'm doing terrible today. God, I need your mercy all the time. Paul also says here, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That can seem kind of weird, doesn't it? Uh, it's a little over the top. But I think he means here that to receive God's mercy in Christ is to hand him back the whole of who you are. Your schoolwork, your social calendar, 
your dating life, to say, God, take these things. I know I can trust you with these things. You've given me yourself in Christ. I trust you because through Jesus I know you're good. Take the whole of who I am. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Take the whole of who you are into the world, into God. And that does mean your social calendar and your dating life and your schoolwork. And one day, if you're graduating, it'll mean your real-world job and your marriage and your kids. Take all of you who you are to God. He also says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He doesn't mean sell your, your brain and join some weirdo cult. He doesn't mean that. It means that if you're a Christian, you're a part of a great intellectual tradition. And that the way that we are, our minds to be transformed is to look honestly at the promises that God has given us in the Bible and say, you know, today I may not feel forgiven. Tomorrow I may, may not feel forgiven. I may wrestle with doubt. I may wrestle with uncertainty. But that God would die to make me right, I know that's true. And I pray that He would transform my mind. And I'm going to stand on the fact that He has really worked and He has been kind and I can trust his Bible. And the general attitude in my dorm or my classroom may be that, you know, people said, I can be independent of God. But for me, my whole life needs to be one where I learn to depend on him. Because I know that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And I know that I need him. I know that apart from him, I'm a very cynical person. Who sees through people who doesn't let people get close to me. But I need him to show me what it is to trust and to be vulnerable and to really love. And here's where I think, really think it, like Christ's work transforms us to make us people who can discern what his will is. Because if you get this, then everything else kind of falls in place. And a pastor named Brian Habig really pointed this out recently. I thought it was really helpful. He said that, you know, we are constantly walking through life asking the question, do you like me? Do you like me? I'm good at I'm a pretty good athlete. Do you like me? I'm a pretty smart person. Do you like me? I work really hard. Do you like me? I'm pretty good hanging out with people. Do you like me? And the end game of all those things is that someone would look at us and say, "Yes, yes, I like you." But man, as someone who's done that themselves. Why does that never feel like enough? Why is it at the end of the day, it just feels like, to me, like that's led to a lot of cynicism and even at times despair? I think because none of those things ultimately will make us right. Not in the way that we crave them to. Because more than the approval of parents or that maybe special professor or dear friends who really do sincerely love us, we need God to look at us and say yes. I like you. And the question we often answer for us at the end of our the day is, how? And what goes on in our heart when we make those kind of big mistakes, right? Because the divider between peace and joy and cynicism and despair lies right there. So say you're someone who's trying really hard to be a nice person, really hard to be a really friendly person, a good student, working hard, making decent grades. But then that summer internship kind of falls through. And then you just lose it. And you don't yell, you don't scream, because nice people won't do that. But inside you're devastated. I mean, really devastated. 
And behind closed doors, you kind of self-medicate with one of your secret sins, like pornography or cutting yourself. And at that moment, at your worst, do you ever listen to yourself? Because if you listen to yourself, you'll hear one of two things. Just dig your way out of this. Because if you get hold of this thing in the next 48 hours, you can make it all the way back up and restore your faith in yourself. And you will be covered in pride when you do that. Because you see all those people who didn't make it back up. Or that voice will say, you know, you'll never dig your way out. You're a failure. And both those things are bad news. But what if instead we listened to ourselves and said, okay, I know that's not true. I know the gospel. Alright, one, that was horrible. Two, that was horrible. Three, who did Jesus come for? People who do horrible things. People who feel like failures at times. People who don't always make the grade or make the cut. And two days ago, when my friends and I were hanging out in the quad, enjoying the sunshine, yo-po, and it was just a totally Instagrammable day, <laughs> what made me write? Was it that great day? No. Was it that horrible day that disqualified me? No. Jesus makes me right. God's mercies make me right. What about the non-Christian? You could believe the same two lies if you're a Christian or not Christian. Like, I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die, but I'm going to get a handle on this. Has that ever worked out before? Is that good news? Will that save you in the future? I don't think so. On the other hand, is it good news to say, you know, I know there are good people out there, but I'm not one of them. And so you just despair. And you self-medicate and forget that you're not at peace with God or with yourself. Or would good news be that God would give you the thing that you have most longed for and you've most sought after? Not just tolerance, but real love and delight and genuine welcome. You see, to be transformed by those truths, by the truth that God became a man and He died for people like us, cynical people, people who despair at times. And to be renewed by those truths, to give the whole of who we are to those truths, that is the Christian life. And more than mission, more than being a good neighbor, more than reading our Bible, to be transformed by that truth is our joy. Because to be transformed by them is to do mission. To be transformed by them is to be a good neighbor. And to be transformed by them is to want to read the Bible. The thing that all of our prayers, all of our sermons, all of our worship leads to is God's mercy in Jesus. And that is good news. That is good news. And that's the thing we have to hang our hat on. That's the thing we have to be transformed by. I'll end with this. I was, uh, I can't say I read this book, but I was reading a book review about this book. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> uh, there's a guy named Matthew Alexander, um, and his job in the last, over the last 10 years was that he was in Iraq working for the Army. And he was on the team that when the Army would go out on patrol and capture like notorious like non-combatants, not just like guy, the guy with the AK-47, but like the guy who's on the most wanted list, Matthew Alexander's job was to interrogate him and try to get this guy on their side. And he, he is solid on this. He's very adamant about that. He would not use torture. He did not torture people, he said. He did not waterboard or electrocute or anything like that. But he got, he got people on his side. 
And he said, this is what, how he did it. He said he never hurt anyone, but he was kind to people. He respected their families. When he went to their houses, eventually, any food that he ate, he would repay them for it. He would buy them gifts. He was generous. That that's how he transformed people's minds. That guys who had been on the other side of the war, trying to kill Matthew Alexander, trying to destroy the United States Army, would tell him their deepest, darkest secrets. Apart from torture, apart from being mean, but because he was kind. And you know, I think a lot of time we can treat God as though he's kind of our interrogator. He's going to just shake us up. He's going to rattle us around. If we really mess up, when's the next shoe going to drop? But God believes that people are changed, people transformed by love. Look at the cross. That's love. Look at Jesus getting beat up for us. That's love. The fact that he was on the cross and he absorbed the wrath of God like a sponge so that he could hand us his status as a child and God could look at you and say, My daughter, my son, I have nothing against you. You are my joy and my delight. Jesus does that for us. And that is how God transforms our minds and our souls and the very world. And our mission is to be transformed by that and to invite other people into it. And if anything, I hope that's what you learned this semester. And if you're graduating, I hope that's what you learned these last four years. Is that God transforms you through His love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. <laughs> that you would die in our place when we're cynical, when we despair because we look at ourselves, when we look at all the ways in which we mess up, all the ways in which we fail. God, that you would hand us your perfect record. And you would hand us your perfect son. And you would give us his status. And you would give us his love. And you make us whole. And Lord, I pray that you would transform our minds. I pray you would transform our hearts. God, so that we would trust you, we would love you. Lord, so that we would help to invite people into this thing that has transformed the world for 2,000 years. God, would you be with us in that? Would you answer these prayers? Would you help your people to know your son? In his name we pray. Amen.